Did you just now come home? No. Were you there last night? Yes. I was just afraid to call. Stay on the line, okay? I'm going to take you to the police department. Okay. Oh, hi, Lynn. Oh, hi. Where you been? Where, uh, where have I been? Yeah. Just around. It's been like weeks. Yeah. I've uh, been underwater. Yeah, that's what you keep saying. Yeah. Every time I, I, I text you, you've been underwater. The, like, what does that mean, that you've been underwater? See, I'm, I'm over here. I did two dark topics. Wow. Dead time story for, for Patreon. I'm keeping everything going. I, I, I started a Dang. thing called Brutal at the $5 tier with, with Kent. And then every time... I message you to see what's going on. You go, I'm underwater. <laughs> well, okay, so um, underwater is a combination of ingredients of stressors, such as family stuff. And then also, hey, remember when I came up with that thing called Free Store? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a little like a country saying, let's go to the moon. <laughs> and then you don't know what it entails to make a free store. Okay, so I'll explain. On Patreon, we have a $13 tier where I do some dead time stories, which are like old school dark topics uh, whenever I can. I'm trying for two times a month, eventually three. But also, along with that, you said that you would provide a free store. Yes. And I was like, well, how are you going to do that? You're like, don't worry about it. Don't worry, I got this. And then you were underwater uh, for... Forever. Mm. So Okay, so here's... When I said free store, in my head, I thought this is... I go to Hobby Lobby sometimes, Hobby Lobby. Do you have Hobby Lobby there? <laughs> no. <laughs> Don't have Hobby Lobby. Anyway, Hobby Lobby is owned by, I believe, Jesus. Okay. Um, so it's a hobby store, big, giant hobby store. Like, Well, not just craft store. It's like crafts and all the things. Like, if you want distressed farm-looking tin designs for your wall mm. that look like they were painted 30 years ago, this is a place to go. Okay. You'll find every letter of the alphabet in three-foot-tall letters. You'll find candlesticks, fabric, everything you could ever want in a Hobby Lobby. It's like a, it's like Home Depot for crafting. Okay, okay, got it. reason I'm bringing that up is because when I go to Hobby Lobby, one of the things that brings you in is that they have like a coupon code that you can use one time every time you go in and it's like 40% off, right? <laughs> so you load all this stuff in your cart and all the time I'm like, oh, don't worry, don't worry. One of these items will be 40% off. And what happens more often than not is that they give you 40% off, but they pick the, the cheapest thing that's full price in your cart and then you get that for 40% off. So like if you bought a $1,000 item and it and a seven dollar item, they're gonna take forty percent off the seven dollar, right? So in my head, when I said free store, I was like, no, I'll just make it so that like, you know, some items are free when no matter what you have in your cart, and some items are free. And I didn't realize the math that Hobby Lobby must have they must have had like NASA engineers creating the point of sale systems to calculate which item is free or 40% off because it is a lot of math to figure out. Right. It got worse after I created 45 items for our store to sell. I was just mm -hmm. inventing things for the store that like 
I have to make now. <laughs> <laughs> but you did it, right? So this is the store ready? Yeah, store's ready. Okay. Sounds simple, but uh, it, it was uh, a severe amount of calculus. <laughs> yeah, I saw. I see. It's it's a really nice looking store. So it, it it's up now. Yeah, we'll talk more to the people on Patreon about the about everything going on with that. But t shirts, what do you got? Pins? Oh gosh, I was like, hey, maybe we could do puzzles. Do I know how to make puzzles? No, but let's put them on this store. Holy cow! So now we got puzzles and mouse pads and pins and just about everything you could ever want to have our stupid faces on. It's there it's on th- something. Mm-hmm. Anyways, we'll explain more on Patreon, but that's where you've been for the most part. That's that's you being underwater. And you anything else that you want to talk about? Because everybody was worried about you. I had to talk to people on Facebook, told them there was an emergency for you. Are you is everything okay in your world? Yeah, there was some there was some uh family stuff that happened that was really really scary. I'll just say this. There are some nine one one contents from the family stuff that happened that will become an episode uh i'll leave it at that all right yeah it was it was a harrowing uh several weeks i'll say that and i won't push it because i've tried to ask you multiple times about it and you just change the subject or don't talk to me so we'll we'll move on with with the episode but i'm glad to see you i'm glad to hear from you and i'm glad to hear that everything sounds half decent and i'm glad the store is finally up too yeah i'm i was just so worried about all of that stuff i should you know I do everything late. I should have done the store in September uh, because I, I'm an idiot. I I haven't talked to you in so long that I thought maybe my my English accent was going to be worse <laughs> next time I talk to you. Like I would not be as intelligible as I am uh, now. You sound great. You sound great. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, I want to remind you too, like he said, like how like everything's late, right? There was a point there where I was like, "Does he?" Th- like, we called ourselves Eleven Fifty Nine Media because we do everything last minute. Yes, but I was wondering if you, along with the store, were going to change us to Three AM Media. <laughs> <laughs> well, you bring up a good point. So I did re- rebrand Eleven Fifty Nine Media. We did right, mm. uh, new logo. Yeah, uh, and I thought, what what could be a good logo is a is a clock that's unplugged. At 11.59, because if the deadline is midnight and you unplug the clock at 11.59, the deadline really never comes and everybody's okay with it. I, that's, uh, you that's know, the way that works. That's it. So, yeah, I'm pretty sure. All right. Well, we're back. So, we're back. Let's get into a back. call. Hey, also, this is, uh, this is season two. Mm-hmm. Did you know that? We've done 30 episodes. We had to make something up for, to, to explain why, Excuse. <laughs> why this has taken so long. This thing kind of came out of nowhere, this 911 call. It's like, it was almost a joke at the start to me. And uh, well, yeah. it got out of hand. And, and now we're. I don't think we've ever told everyone how it came about, but it was basically we were doing Crime Machine mm-hmm. and Dark Topic. And we were trying to figure out, other than stupid after shows like every other joker that does a podcast, what else could we throw on Patreon to try to get people to pay us $2 a month? And we thought, I I wrote down on the whiteboard this one time, I was like, well, what if we just did this thing called The Call, and then I can find some 911 calls, and like every once in a while we just play a 911 call and we talk about it, and now we have a giant 400-pound baby that we take care of every week. Yeah, it came out of nowhere. We would have never had 911 calls without having done Crime Machine. It was a crazy journey. 
it was a crazy journey. Yeah. And, and now the tons of people are listening to it, and, and it's super popular. So we're going to try to get more consistent, and uh, and it feels good to be back talking to you. Yeah, for sure. This is this is nice, huh? And I do have I do have some good insight into this into this case now. So let's get right into it. Okay, I'm, I got a question for you to start here. Mm-hmm. Hey, Luna, what is your experience in speaking to children who have suffered some kind of uh, like trauma in their life? Sure. Uh, I almost fell asleep there. That was a snore. They're they're, <laughs> they're waiting for the right question to like um, to allow them to crack open. Usually, if if they've been through something and you know something's wrong, they need you to ask the right question to crack them open. I find like they need to feel supported. Like it's a safe place to talk about it. Uh, they don't want to get themselves or anyone else in trouble. Usually, they if something big has happened, it feels just like trouble. Is going on, and they they don't want mm-hmm. they don't want anything to do with it. And they want it to fix itself. They have trouble accepting anything of enormity, and just kind of want the whole thing to fix itself. So, uh, so they don't need to face it. They just want it to be better. That's that's been my experience with uh, with myself as a kid, but also in dealing with other kids. It's it's not that difficult, really. Yeah. But it can be if you come at them in in the wrong way. Kids just want to feel safe. I totally agree. They want to feel safe, and they want to make sure that those people that are in their circle of people that they know that they should protect, that they are also safe, which sometimes is bewildering to a normal population who, when a kid will protect an, an abusive Mm-hmm. parent for example or they've been groomed in a certain way and they'll protect that person it's mind-boggling that they would but children are very pure compared to us where they lack what is called guile yeah. they don't see evil in everything they don't see the lie behind every half truth they know i should love my mom no matter what she does blah 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 Yep. You know, until you can see more depth. And often, like you said, they won't break that bond or that security unless they are put into a position where they know that they're actually helping rather than hurting. Yes. Yep. Said person. Definitely. And and often, you know, they end up having to go back to that, that parent that has done something to them. And they know, they'll know what the repercussions are going to be. So it's safer to not say anything sometimes. Yes. But again, if you're the right counselor or the right police officer or the right 911 call operator, you can crack them open just by making them feel safe and that they're with somebody that will protect them from this abuse or these people if they do tell the truth. I've recently actually had young family members that have been going to counseling, and I've had to kind of rejigger the way that I translate counseling because... In our society, counseling is often looked at as something is broken with you, so you need to go and have somebody tell you what's broken. Right. And that's what counseling is to perceive to be by a lot of people. But in in reality, what it is, is the life experiences that we go through oftentimes create this redirect in our brains as to how to survive the trauma or the abuse or the the thing that has been brought upon us, our brains try to reroute to save our brains, to save our minds and everything. And when you go to counseling, it's not, here's what's broken and punish, 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 and, and why didn't, you know, this is how you're crazy. What it is, is if you're willing to allow it to work, I believe most of the time what it is, is the person, the counselor, the other person is like, Here's where you, 
in your thinking are taking a hard right or a hard left from what is relatively illogical perspective where your responses may be unrealistic or a reflex because of past things. And then the counselor is there to build you with tools of awareness. It's all about awareness. You now become aware of the things that trigger you or the things that make you turn left or right when you should be going straight. Yes. And then how you can compensate for that to keep going straight as opposed to taking that hard it, turn. Yeah. It's almost like not rewiring but unwiring. Yes. Because we are, we are all wired by the people that we are influenced by as we grow up. And it takes many of us so long to unwire ourselves into our 20s or 30s. I know people in their 40s who are still screwed up from whatever their parents put into their heads or the people that they grew up with, you know. And uh, to expect a child to be there are children, though. Don't get me wrong. That you know that are such individuals naturally that they see they 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 could be above it and beyond it and think for themselves. But so many of us, man, we still react based on the basis that was pushed into us fr- from a young age. And and true freedom, I think, comes from simply being able to eventually think for yourself. And you might even think you're thinking for yourself, but you got to look at where, where where the seeds of each thought are coming from. And if they got to be new seeds, they can't be coming from old plants or... I don't know what the fuck I'm trying to say there, but I think No, I think you're right. Yeah, th- thinking for yourself and reacting to a situation can potentially be two very different approaches to something. Reacting to a situation often is based on our experience, our past experiences, whereas thinking for ourselves is based is rooted in a value set that we have like i like this i don't like this i do this i don't like that i don't do that and that is a a true to form way of being a human whereas reacting to a situation is is typically based on past stimulus and we're out of control when we react well a quick one for you too is like say you grew up in a conservative valued family and you you naturally become conservatively valued as well Mm -hmm. that's (laughs) <laughs> one example, you're not really thinking for yourself. And, but then there's another example where someone will be, say, be, say, the exact opposite just for the sake of being different. And that is you're still entrapped in, in that mindset because you're, you're, you're doing the opposite of what you think you should be doing. But you're still tied mm-hmm. to that basis, right? The true thinking for yourself is to wipe it all somehow and take a real good look at what your value set you want to be for you rather than it be like a rebellious thing or a going along with it type thing. And there are very few of us that could figure that out. Often, honestly, I I've almost am jealous of some people who just had their parents wiped away at an early age and they were able to just think for themselves. I'm sure they got all this trauma and stuff in the background, but they had to develop their own Self, you'll see in a lot of mafia guys uh, who had like just they were brought up by the streets or you know gang members and things like that, who become like these real strange and different individuals as a result. And I, I think that's I think those are interesting people. I think as humans we are attracted to simplicity. We're mm-hmm. attracted to simple logic. We're attracted to. I don't know if you've ever seen city slickers, but for the majority of the the cow ride, you know, as they're taking. Cookie, I think, is his name, or Snacky, or (laughs) Crackles. I don't know. The old guy, the smart one. Oh, yeah. Right. He's always saying, there's one thing, one thing. 
and you're hooked on that the whole show and yeah. you don't know what the one thing is and and but we are hungry for the one thing we're hungry for look at history we follow those who seem to have a very simple way of navigating very complex situations whether it's good or bad whether it's Che Guevara or Hitler <laughs> or Mother Teresa or you know Gandhi they establish a very simple fundamental set of values and then they filter life through those and we follow yeah whether it's a good good filter or a bad filter but people are attracted to the fact that people can sum up life so easily and so straightforward and we're like i want to i want more give me more what are, i'm hungry for this i think we're all trapped by how long we live too we don't live very long and if we all live to be a thousand years old we'd experience and become much wiser and, and whatever and that's what history is so good for us that you can you know you can grab from that and expand upon it, but I think many of us just get into this uh, circular thing that everybody and people before us in the past have run into too, and it takes us forever to, to unravel before we can actually become something uh, new and original and worthwhile and, and forward-thinking. It, it takes us all a long time. And anyways, with kids, to try to bring that back, they are nowhere near that set of thinking. They're just trying to, to make everything okay they just want everything to be okay and feel safe it's scary to be a little kid man you're little mm -hmm. you're just you're mm -hmm. you're little i mean you're, you're yeah. looking out for other people to take care of you and when those systems fail on you it's it's a it's a terrifying feeling i even would challenge that you're looking for people to take care of you i think it's just fundamentally they don't even have to think about it because they're taken care of yeah. in most situations they until it. they're not. And then then the human brain goes into survival mode, hmm. which brings us to this call. Great. This is this this is the season two kickoff, so <laughs> okay. I feel like we've earned ourselves a little sure. bit of jibber jabber here at the beginning. Mm -hmm. All right, Luna, guess what day this nine one one call takes place on back in two thousand seven? September 11th. Oh, 9-11. That's all the significance I have for that fact. But So moving on. Right. So on that day, in the early morning hours, a nine-year-old boy, a resident of Rhineville, Kentucky. You know anybody from Kentucky? Yeah, Ken Chung is True Crime Kent. Check it out. It's a great podcast. My favorite podcast, True Crime Kent. Yeah, it's all right. It's all right. <laughs> I can barely understand what that guy says. He's mm -hmm. got an accent. Mm -hmm. Um. But, yeah, he's pretty cool, I guess. Okay, so he's a resident of Rhineville, Kentucky. I mean, his family were residents of that city. He's nine, so as a dependent, he really isn't a resident of any city. But anyway, <laughs> he called 911 that morning and had a chilling story to recount to the dispatcher. This is another story of a kid calling 911 under extreme situations. But unlike a lot of the ones that we've covered, which have been happy endings, this one might leave you a bit more gutted. But don't worry, no children were harmed in this situation, just former children who are now full-grown adults. <laughs> which, yeah, it's still sad, but as they're not children anymore, we know it's a bit more, I don't know, I guess palatable for some sure. reason, which I... Still don't really understand, but whatever. Mm. Anyway, this one will kick you in the earballs butt, so uh, <laughs> let's get into it. Yeah. You, uh, you ready for me to hit play? I'm ready, man. Yeah. All right. Here we go. 911. Somebody broke into our house. Um, 
last night, and um, I don't know who it was, but um, but they killed everybody here except for my my sister, my brother, and me. Okay, and what happened now? Um, there was a guy with a pistol or some kind of gun, and he came in and uh, shot my mother and my grandma. Those were the only ones here. And you're there now? And they, and they also killed one of my grandma's dogs, so we still have three dogs left. Um, Did you just now come home? No. Were you there last night? Yes, I was just afraid to call. Stay on the line, okay? I'm going to take you to the police department. Okay. Kentucky State Police 911. Yeah, um, there was a break-in, um, that last night. I was afraid to call, and, um, uh, they shot, they shot the only two people here, which was my grandma and my mom. In what county? Ronnieville, Kentucky. In Ronnieville? Mm-hmm. What's going on right now? Um, nothing. I was just afraid to call, so, uh, last night. Okay, and did the police come out last night? No. They didn't? No. And who was shot last night? Um, my mom and my um, grandma. Your mom and grandma? Yes. Um, and one of my um, grandma's dogs. Uh, um, the only people here are me, my sister, and my brother. How old is your sister and your brother? My sister's like a, um, a few months old. My brother's only just four. How old are you? Um, nine. Where were they taken last night? Did the police come? No, they weren't taken. They were shot in my house. Okay. And did they go to the doctor? No. Where are they at right now? They're dead in my house. There's blood splattered everywhere. Do you know who done this? No. You don't know? And you've been there all night by yourself? Yes, with my brother and sister. Okay, honey, you stay on the line, okay? Okay. Okay. I thought I would, uh, in season two, come up with something other than saying, oh, okay, after we have a call. But really, there's just no response that's appropriate except for, oh, my gosh. Well, I'm just thinking about how he'd been there all night, and it sounds like it just happened. And that leads you to, you know, he's he's been just dealing with this all night. He's got two younger kids, a four-year-old brother, Ian, and a two-year-old sister, Reagan, right? So he's been taking care of a two and a four year old through this whole mess all night long, afraid to call. And then when he finally gets on the call, it does, doesn't it sound like it just happened? But it's been nine hours or something? Yeah. Oh, yeah. One of the things that I think is interesting is the way a child's brain works in this situation. He keeps saying the only ones here was my mother and my grandma. Yeah. But they were there. So, but if you think in a child's logic, once a child goes to bed, yeah. the only people there, quote unquote, there in the house are whoever's still awake, yeah. right? Because if you if you go to sleep, you you're disappeared. Basically, you know, <laughs> right. you're under the sheets. <laughs> so, so in this case, the only people that were there or awake or you know accessible were grandma and the mom, and yeah. apparently one dog that. Uh, yeah. And they're up hiding. They were hiding in a closet, I think, for for most of the night. But he must have got out and went to check on it and everything. And wow, it's terrible. Here's a little backstory. On the call, you're hearing nine year old Matthew Pete, and he was calling the morning after his mother and grandmother were murdered in the middle of the night. They think around three a.m. Mm-hmm. is when the murder happened. Uh, so he gathered his two siblings, both of them younger than him. And he made this call. 
Can you imagine being that kid and finding your mom and grandma and a dog dead and then having the composure to call like he did? I mean, no. Uh, I mean, you got to call eventually, though, and he did. And he did a great job with the call, too. He was very clear about what was going on. Yes. And it's a tough thing to say, too. Like, he says they're dead. Like, he knows they're dead. And the reason why he knows is because he went and he checked on them. That's messed up. Yes, for sure. And he had to repeat it. He had to repeat it twice because they transferred the call over there too, right? Said it again. Said it with right. the same amount of clarity. And Yeah, man. Well, and you think about the dispatcher in this case, uh, both of them actually. I mean, the way these things normally go is if somebody gets hurt, they go to the doctor or the police come or something, you know? So they're like, so when did the police come? Right. Oh, they didn't come. No. So when did they go to the doctor? Oh, they didn't go to the doctor. No, there's their blood is all over the, the place here. Crazy. Do you understand? I've been here all night babysitting a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and my mom and my grandmother are dead. Jeez. At the end of the call, he says, uh, we're the only ones here mm-hmm. now. My brother, me, and my sister, we're the only ones here. Because yeah. now they're awake and yeah. they're present. And, and we're back. Oh, my goodness. It's just so tragic. Mm-hmm. Okay. So pretty quickly here, the police show up. Obviously, this is a you know kind of a rare incident to happen where you know this kind of thing probably happens more than we like to think. But... In any regard, police show up and they they interview the children, the the two two older brothers, who seriously aren't that old. But mm-hmm. um, Matthew, the nine year old, uh, said that he identified the intruder had a, a jacket on that was camouflage, and he also mentioned that it was similar to a jacket that his stepdad had. Yeah. And then when they interviewed Ian, who is four. He said, you want to talk to me about daddy killing mommy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which was seems pretty open and shut right there, but... Right. But he's a four-year-old. Right. And uh, they also talked to... So it was um, Tracy Burke is the mother who was shot. They found her in her bedroom. Yes. And Karen Comer, the grandmother, was found in the kitchen. Um, Karen was actually grandmother. There was a previous marriage that um, Tracy was involved in, but she actually left Matthew's father for Brent Burke, who was in the in the military, and they had two kids together, Ian and the youngest, Reagan. Yes. And so they end up talking to the parents of Tracy just to see if there was anything strange going on leading up to this. And in fact, there was. She had been afraid for her life. The fa- her father actually holds a lot of guilt in this whole thing because he was wanting to come and get her on the Saturday. This incident happened on the Tuesday. But he didn't because she assured him that she would be able to handle it. So interesting, too, on that. Uh, I was just thinking, so rewinding to what they both said. Yep. Matthew said that the jacket was like one that his stepdad had. So Matthew was in from a previous marriage. That's right. And then Ian said, "Daddy killed mommy." So yes, yeah, so he's by blood. He's he's Brent Burke's son. So were they living together at the time? So the father is staying at Fort Campbell, which is a military base. They have been together. Him and Tracy have been together previous to this. He had gone on a thirteen-month tour in Afghanistan. Just before he had left, he actually had assaulted Matthew, the oldest child, who was on the call. 
by lifting him up and smashing him onto some concrete and claiming that it was just he was screwing around and that Matthew was exaggerating how much pain he was in. From this incident, Tracy's sister was actually there to to see it happen, and uh, they said no. He he was super aggressive towards him. So anyways, when he left, Tracy got it into her mind that she was going to leave him. And during that time, she lost 60 pounds, bought a Camaro, a two-door Camaro. And when Brent Burke, who is the husband and who's who's the one that they think did this, when his father asked her, what's he going to think about all this? Like, you're gussing yourself up and you've lost all this weight and now you're buying a car. And she said, I don't really give a shit what he thinks. Mm. So the indication was she was going to be splitting up with him. When he got back... They had this argument, and and uh, he went and and started living at Fort Campbell, which is actually straddling Kentucky Tennessee border, right, 140 miles away. But he was starting to stalk her. He would be waiting in the parking lot when she got off of work. She was a nurse, acting erratically, showing up at the house, asking where everybody's sleeping for some reason, wanting to know where all the kids were and all the rooms, and and just. Mm. Behaving oddly, I actually saw a video of him. He took the video and he was watching Tracy while she did laundry. And his comment is, "There she is doing laundry like a good woman should." And Tracy turns and gives him the finger. It gives you some insight into their relationship right there and his mindset. So the police go looking for Brent Burke, and they soon bring him in. So they bring Brent Burke in. It's honestly pretty open and shut as far as that goes. There's meager amounts of evidence. But between the witness statements of the children, the complex statements by the parents of Tracy. So Brent worked as a military police officer. He got off at 1030 that night and his roommates saw him, right? But he left for work Mm. himself. So I think it was from 1130 until around 7 a.m. There was a gap there where they didn't know where he was. And he claimed to be out truck shopping. Oh, yeah, because that's something you do in the middle of the night. Right. Well, the, his his claim, and his family backed this up, is that he didn't like to deal with salesmen. So he would show up at one of these places <laughs> with all these trucks and just go around and kicking the tires and looking at them sure. in the middle of the night just to avoid yeah. salesmen. Um, when I do truck shopping in the middle of the night, it oftentimes by the police is called Grand Theft Auto. But, you know, that's neither... Yeah. Here nor there. It is I definitely guess. odd. But again, the, the family backed him up on this. Also, he said that um, he claimed it was a two-hour, 40-minute drive from Fort Campbell to the house in Rhineville. Here's another thing about that, where I just kind of try to punch a hole in that concept. One, how often do you have to go shopping for trucks? <laughs> One, how often are you shopping for trucks? Uh, two, what are, you, what are you? P. Diddy, you can just always shop for trucks? <laughs> two... How often are you doing it in the middle of the night that it becomes a customary practice that your family's like, oh, yeah, yeah, he, oh, yeah, he does that all the time. <laughs> and three, how are you getting into these places? Because I'll bet you money, if you wait till 3 a.m., then you go out and you drive the streets, go to a car place, there's a gate. Yeah. That, like, unless it's like just a little tiny place, they put the gate the front of that place just so you can't go willy nilly through there, you know sleeping in cars as a hobo would or right. a homeless car shopper. Well, I think the I think the problem here is that he's lying. Um, but he, yes. he claims that it's a two-hour, 40-minute <laughs> drive. So if he left at 10.30 or 11 o'clock, like they say, and he got back by 7, we're talking, uh, you know, like eight hours. So he's claiming that almost six hours of that would be taken up by this drive and he wouldn't have enough time to have killed 
his his mother had done all these things in the two hour span. He also says that he slept. So to make up for all of that time, he didn't spend seven hours or whatever it was, seven, eight hours looking at trucks. So what he claimed to have been doing was he just fell asleep in his car because he didn't he got tired after looking at trucks and decided to pull over and sleep in his car and then he showed up back at his barracks at 6:30 a.m. when his roommate saw him once again. So the alibi is not airtight. I will give him the fact that I get bleary-eyed trying to read the dicker stickers on cars trying to figure out exactly how much I'm going to be paying for undercoating, but six hours of dicker sticker translation and then getting so weary, you just like bristle up in your car. By the way, it's probably a truck. I mean, if the guy's shopping all the time for trucks, he's probably driving a truck, I would assume, mm-hmm. only assume. So, yeah. Yeah, I don't believe this. Anyways, he's he is brought to trial pretty quickly, swiftly, and uh, it's it, it doesn't end here by any means. I mean, this goes on and on. Yeah, so he goes into trial the defense walks into the court to start the trial and there's a stack of four tapes sitting on their table and the audio tapes contain the confession from a 14 year old kid named Deshaun White mm-hmm. this is crazy so like the defense is coming in to defend Burke yeah in this trial and they come in and they're like, da, 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 here's a confession on your table. And they're like, who, who's Deshaun White? What is this all about? And they have no idea what's going on. And so they've got to quickly assess. And, and so the prosecution says, well, Deshaun White has confessed to this crime, 14-year-old Deshaun White. But here's the problem. The police never believed White. Right. And he recanted his confession even before the trial started. Right. Deshaun White, 14 years old, came home around the same time as these murders, and he had blood all over his shirt. And he claimed that he had been in some gang initiation situation. And what how he got initiated was by going into a random house and shooting people in there, and that he was the one who had done it. He later retracted it, saying, no, I had just fallen while I was playing basketball, hit my head, and... Uh, That is all there is to it. But because of this, and because the defense didn't have this evidence to work with and and whatever, there was a mistrial. Okay, one of two things is either happening here. Either the prosecution knows that that's a weak case with Deshaun White, and Mm -hmm. they know it, so they're willing to go to trial against a guy that didn't confess, which is creepy. Right. Because they're just looking for the win, which is super creepy. It happens. Or two... Yeah, it does. Yeah, or or two, or two, they they know that the whole thing is about to blow up in their face, and they're just seeing this through. Which once again, creepy and crazy. But anyway, the prosecution failed to inform the defense about the confession, which is actually required by law. Anytime there's a confession, and it's not the guy on the other side of the aisle, yeah. you got to say something. So, obviously, the judge looked at this circus that was happening in front of him, and he just declares a mistrial. Yes. Yeah, so this leads to a second trial. Because it was a mistrial, you know, they had the opportunity to collect their thoughts and everything and and try for this thing again. Technically, because it's a mistrial, that early, it's not considered being retried for the same crime. It's just Deshaun threw a big wrench in the works, and now they're like, great, now, okay, now we got to start over. So... 
here's here's an interesting thing, by the way. Did you know this? That there were shell casings that were found at the scene, mm-hmm. and and a few days before that. Brent borrowed a nine millimeter handgun from his father-in-law. So, so you would think with that situation there, shell casings at the house, he borrowed a nine millimeter handgun. You'd think that that would be pretty damning evidence as soon as they did ballistics on that, right? Yeah, it would be. Actually, I need to correct you there. He actually gave him the. It was, he said it was a Ruger nine millimeter. He gave it to him in April. So this happened in September. Going back again, Tracy's father feels so guilty about this whole thing. He could have wanted to get her out of, out of there on the Saturday. Plus, he thinks he gave the the what ended up being the murder weapon to his uh, yeah. son in law. But yeah, so they found shells. There, there were shells on the ground. Well, and it would have been more open and shut than already this case was before Deshaun got involved. Probably. If they picked them up, the casings had been recovered by the police, but instead they were thrown out by the cleanup crew. Okay, so this brings us to something that I wanted to cover really quick. This is this blew my mind. It's crazy. So I'm going to ask you. Okay, so here's a hypothetical, but real world scenario for you, Luna. Let's say you were the family of someone that was brutally murdered and that there was more of them on the walls than was left on the ground, okay? Okay. And, and we, we all know the timeline for a crime scene. So, so somebody discovers the scene, it's called in, and the investigation of the scene uh, takes place. And that's usually done by various authorities that are assigned to that scene, to that, you know, case. Evidence is collected, and the whole thing is documented. And then what what happens? Well, the family or the landlord of the building is left to, to clean up the mess. Yeah. Yeah. Here's the crazy thing. So so they all just take pictures and document the whole thing, and, and then they just go. Yeah. And this whole scene is left to be cleaned up by family or, like you said, the owner of the building. Okay. So here's what's crazy, though. Have you ever tried to throw away bags of blood or brain matter or dismembered members of a family member? No, I haven't. <laughs> okay. Well, the the reason is the short answer is you can't. You can't <laughs> just put it out for the garbage men to pick up on Tuesday morning. It's it's actually illegal to dispose of what is considered hazardous material or hazardous biological material in that manner for a lot of reasons. One, you can't just throw out disposed human parts because they could get into the black market regardless of their condition. But also biological material can't be disposed of into normal sewage systems or waterways. Uh, probably but the most important thing is disposing of human remains may increase the likelihood of infectious material being deposited into a public system, a right. water system. Or We have no idea what's going on in bodies, so... It's illegal to just willy-nilly distribute them like, uh, you know, junk mail. Mm -hmm. So guess who has to do this? So civilian small businesses are contracted to do this stuff. They're called crime scene cleaners. Also, sometimes they're called bioremediation specialists or forensic cleaners. And they're they're contracted to do to clean up these scenes. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing. They've got licenses to dispose of the hazardous material from a crime scene. At specified facilities. And some things cost more than others to dispose of, and some are more complex of a disposal process. Like, for example, human body parts. You can't just be dumping those things in a landfill alongside your old Christmas tree, for example. <laughs> but they have to be taken to a facility uh, for destruction, usually by incineration or something. But 
even these crime scene cleanup companies can't just roll up with a baggie full of grandma and say, hey, could you throw this in with the next bonfire? <laughs> no, 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 you can't do that. Most of these facilities have an actual minimum amount that they'll accept. So that means that grandma's guts might just be stored in a container or in a freezer somewhere until there are enough other dead people that are collected to meet the minimum quota for a dead drop. That's oh, crazy. Man. So here's a little visual for you. So just remember that somewhere in your town, most likely, is very likely an unmarked building where there are partial people remains just waiting to pile up until they've reached a certain height. Wow. And then they can be submitted for destruction. But somewhere there's there's people parts sitting yeah. in a freeze, freezer or a box. Yeah, in a freezer or yeah. something. And someone keeps on opening the yeah. freezer and be like, hey, what are we doing with this stuff? It's like, ah, we got to wait till it gets to the top. Yeah, because oh. they don't just have like uh, warehouses full of bodies that are still in quote unquote evidence. They do all the evidentiary stuff. Coroners do the things, all the stuff. And then, um, you know, a standard burial might happen, but... But brain matter and, yeah. you know, the, the, the quarts and quarts and quarts of blood that might come out of a body at a scene and sure. stuff, uh, ex, you know, a dismembered eyeball, you know, things like that. They're, they're not like they're not necessarily bagged up in the body bag and said, no, well, just, yeah, scoop, scoop they, this skull part in there, too. Yeah, they grab all the big stuff. It's not like they leave like arms and stuff behind. But I'll give you an example. <laughs> they have yeah. like. So say say a man kills himself in his hotel room and he had like a three-day stay and they only find him days later or even like a week later if they're letting the guy slide a little bit while he literally slides off his bed. The, the I've seen pictures of like the it all creeps up the walls and afterwards they got to replace all the drywall and everything. So, like the mm. body gets real juicy, right? And they peel yeah. him off the bed, but there's skin left behind and gross fluids all soak through the mattress but they leave the mattress behind mm -hmm. so that's the body part that's the stuff that we're talking about and it's up to it's up to if you owned a hotel yes you got to get rid of that stuff or if you're the superintendent of an apartment building you got to get rid of it you got to replace the drywall you got to peel you got to get rid of the mattress and and it goes to a place like what you're talking about like they're not going to just leave dead grandma's body parts on the ground and be like hey family you just uh, if you want to just sweep that stuff into a dustbin and you know yeah now no no yeah they're going to take care of the body but but they don't collect all of it you know no they don't get a scraper out they, they, uh, no. There's stuff left behind. Yeah, buttholes. And yeah, if that got distended and then disconnected, they'll leave it behind. It's the first thing to go. Always the butthole. <laughs> anyway, so there was a second trial that was scheduled. That didn't go too well either because Matthew, the son. The boy who was on the call, the boy who made the phone call. Yeah. The kid who called uh, was also a key witness and he got super sick. So they actually had to cancel the trial. Yeah, yeah. It seems like it seems like it's pretty easy to cancel the trial, man. Like, why not wait till he recovers? Why not put it off? But no, yeah, they you, did. They canceled the trial because of that. So trial number three kicks in, and Matthew and Ian, both key witnesses, they testified that at the trial that they said it was Brent's voice, but in their original statements, they didn't explain that. So the defense said that they felt the kids had been coached into what they testified to on the stand. It was so convincing that it was a hung jury. Mm -hmm. Hung jury. Yeah. Here's what's interesting about that is we're getting into this like territory where it's like how many times can they take this guy to court on stuff, right? 
But because of the prosecution's failure here and the defense's argument that the, the witnesses were coached, mm-hmm. it didn't completely nullify the opportunity to retry him. Mm-hmm. So there's a fourth trial. Just to sum it up, guess what happens in the fourth trial? What? Hung jury. Hung jury, right? Yeah. yeah. Hung jury. These jurors are packing. These jurors are... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're well hung. Well hung. Just to, you know, keep getting these giant hung juries. <laughs> so, hung jury. So, at that point, the state has no more authority to try Brent. Right. Burke. So, Brent was returned to the army after this last trial. Mm-hmm. Failed. Brent was staring at the potential of walking free, except for one little thing. Although his enlistment had expired while he was in civilian custody during the first four trials, he was still, quote-unquote, enlisted with the military when the incident took place. So this puts Brent squarely in the crosshairs of the military for a very justifiable court-martial trial. It's a group of... uh People called Jag. Yeah, great TV show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and they go after him, and uh, the military is much better at nailing this kind of stuff down than I guess. What's it called? What are what are what's the other ones called? Civil attorneys, c- mm-hmm. civil civil court cases. Yeah, yeah. So Jag is the military. If you've ever seen what's that one show that there's a million versions of Law and Order. Mm-hmm. Jag is like the Law and Order version of Law and Order. <laughs> But it's the military side, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, hopefully that makes sense. Look it up. <laughs> anyway, so so this this is exactly what the authorities were hoping for in this case, though. So they had begun communicating with the army shortly before the state dropped all charges due to the state's inability to uh, attempt another trial. They had exhausted all their options. Mm-hmm. So they were talking to the army. The army sees that this is definitely in their wheelhouse because this event happened while he was enlisted. So they kick in a military trial, also called a court-martial. Oh, and sorry, can I, can I add something to that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They To doubly make it something that they're interested in, the military actually considers the victims, because they were a part of a military family, to be one of them as well. Oh. So it's not just so much that they're going after one of their own, but they're trying to protect what they perceive to be one of their own as being a part of this 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 family, right? So uh, they're super motivated to get this right and uphold the standards of what they want their people to be. So if he is guilty of this, they're going to get him. Which is also both cool and it runs a little bit counter to the way civil trials run because they actually have a standard to bear and that they can – put any military person up against and say, are you meeting this standard? Could you imagine if civil trials went that way, man? Yeah, if you meet the standard of being a human being. Holy cow. Everybody would be screwed. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Are you meeting the standard of being a citizen of this city? No. Okay. See ya. <laughs> we'll get into it. It's very interesting how the military go, goes goes after people. There, there's it's a no nonsense style that you do not see in the the regular court system. Yes. Also, no nonsense. There are some aspects of court martial that you would not find in a civil trial. So, for example, there's something called good soldier evidence, mm-hmm. and basically, this is the 
the accused's opportunity to explain their resume of their military service, which can actually weigh into the decision made by the court-martial. So if you're a five-star general that spent 40 years in the military and you smoked your wife and kids, Mm -hmm. you could literally pull up a PowerPoint of the last 40 years of your military service and it weighs in to the decision on whether yeah. or not you're going to, going down for this perceived crime. <laughs> Crazy. I believe that they, and they, they, it's called the panel. They get to pick, like, I believe it's seven mm. people that can be judging them. And I think that Brent Burt, he was able to decide, and he chose some high ranking people, obviously, that he felt would back him up on his experience. Because he had been in for 11 years at this point. He was well known and respected. Yes. So the panel is the quote unquote jury of a court martial. And by default, The panel consists of commissioned officers. So Mm -hmm. full-time job, this is your job, I'm I'm military. Now, a guy like Brent Burke can also request, like you said, they can request that there are enlisted men that are put on that jury as well. So that's kind of interesting. So they can kind of balance it out so it's, you know, the lifers plus, I don't know, it's sort of like saying if I'm a lawyer going to trial, I'd like to have some lawyers in the jury box because they get me, you know, kind of thing. Totally. Kind of mix the bag up a little. So it's interesting. So another thing about the the court martial process is they follow, whereas a court, a civil court, follows U.S. law, federal regulations, state law. All that military court follows something called the Uniform Code of Military Justice. It's a set of rules and regulations that they use to say, are you being a good soldier? Are you being a good representative of our military? Now, members of the military are also expected to follow all civilian laws. You can't just run around violating speeding and robbing places and just because you're military. I mean, it's not like you're an ambassador. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Those guys. <laughs> Those guys. They can do anything. It's creepy. (laughs) Anyway, so they follow this code of military justice. The panel is a mixed bag, potentially. Another really interesting thing on the jury, one more thing, is it doesn't have to be a unanimous decision like in a jury of 12. That's right. Uh, It just has to be two-thirds. Well, let me add something to that, too, because there could be two-thirds who are convinced that he has done this, and the other are kind of undecided. And there's a more common-sense approach to this. It's like, no, I'm really sure. Like, I'm really sure. And you're, like, on the fence over here. What you feel about it doesn't mean as much as as how we're feeling about it. And they kind of get overruled in a way that you don't with a regular jury. This this is a different type of jury. This isn't frigging the garbage man and the postman and some half-baked, disinterested college kid on, on the panel. I mean, these are like high-ranking officers who have some real clout and have some real critical thinking skills, and 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 they'll defer to each other if one is even a gut feeling about this. They'll go as far as saying, "Well, who else could have done it?" That's kind of a common sense thing that we often say to ourselves when we see somebody get off, and we're like, "Well, there wasn't enough evidence." It's like, "Yeah, but who else could have done it?" And in in, in a military trial like this, they'll go with that. They'll be like, well... They, they can go with it, whereas they can't in a civil trial. No. Yeah, you're right. Can you imagine, like, in a jury of 12 of our peers, if at the end they had the, the jury read their decision 
And it went something like, we, the jury, three-quarters of us find the defendant guilty. Bill really believes he's guilty and that that actually weighs into the decision because Bill is like soup. But Janet, she – no, <laughs> she thinks he's innocent. She's freaked out, but she's she thinks he's innocent. So, yeah. Judge, feel free to weigh those two factors into our <laughs> Yeah. Well, in, in, in simple trials, you, you can get to a jury. You can send guys out yeah. to their family and things. It's happened in the past with the mafia right. and all that stuff. Right. And with this, it's, it's much different. You, you have... Uh, well, it's also very different because whereas a regular jury is a jury of our peers, so like you said, it could be a librarian and a garbage man and a lawyer and, and a mime yeah. could all be on your jury, whereas these guys all have skin in the game because yeah. they all represent the accused and the court system itself, the body, the set of rules. Yes. So they are all r- operating under the same logic. And another thing to add is that there can't be a hung jury on this panel. That's not an option. Right. And 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 to this point now, there's been four trials, and they're embarrassed by this thing. They're like, okay, let's figure this shit out. Like, did he do it or not? Yeah. Is there more evidence right. that he did do it than not? Okay, well, he did it. And, like he slept in his car. He was looking at trucks all night. Uh, they find they found um, particles, uh, glass on on one of his uh, coats, right? That they didn't find mm-hmm, initially mm-hmm. in the other trial. So they do a deeper investigation, and they're able to link this glass to glass that was broken um, at the crime scene. It's not a lot of evidence, but it's at least some. You bring up a good point. In the civil trial, you can't say. He slept in his car, and it was 3 a.m. Yeah, right. Yeah. But in the military trial, do you know what they can say? They could say, that is not behavior that yeah. is becoming of a military officer. Yes. And that actually factors yeah. in because it's going against the kind of the decorum of, of being a military representative. That set of rules really becomes a, a filter by which everything can pass through or not. There's much more common sense involved in a military trial than there is with this, where the um, prosecution and defense can muddy the water so much that they just throw their hands in the air. With this, it's more like, no, shut up. Here's the evidence. Yes or no. What do you think? Also, the process of being part of the military says that you agree to abide by a set of standards. We as civilians are not held to that standard. Yeah. So these are standards that they abide by. And that's why when somebody says, and that's an order. Yeah. They do it because they are they are committed to a set of standards. Okay, even though it's a court-martial, there are a couple different tiers of court-martial. There's a summary court-martial, which is sort of like a slap on the wrist. You might do up to like 30 days jail time or some hard labor, uh, maybe a reduction in your pay grade, or you could even forfeit up to 60% of your monthly pay at that kind of a court-martial, but you're still honorably enlisted, blah, 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 but you're going to do some time. You're going to do something to to compensate for what you've done. Right. Then for misdemeanor type of offenses, there's what's called a special court-martial. It's reserved for just your normal, we would consider misdemeanors as a civilian. There might be docking of pay. Really at that level, that's where you might be discharged from service. And then the final one is it's called a general court-martial, and that's what Brent Burke was facing, used for the most severe offenses. Here's an interesting thing. The court might just be a military judge or a judge and a panel, so, yeah. you know, jury, judge and jury, or just a judge. So you might just walk in and a judge is like, guilty. Or it's a trial and these jurors have to kind of 
determine what's up. Yeah. And you could potentially, ultimately, you could lose your life. You could get the death penalty mm-hmm. from that kind of a court-martial, lose your job, loss of pay, dishonorable discharge, the whole, nothing is short of the, the extent of the punishment there. So, yeah. Oof. So he's in this court-martial. It, it only takes him two and a half hours from what I saw, for them to come to a guilty verdict. And part of what they're talking about in the back is a very small part, but at least they take it into consideration. I'm not sure if they would take this as much into consideration as uh, civil court would. But Matthew, when he's on the stand, the boy who made the call, his father, Brent Burke, or his, sorry, his stepfather, is giving him threatening looks throughout the entire process. And when Ian, <laughs> the, young, the middle child, is up there, the same thing. And they see this. I don't know if it pushes it over the edge, but it certainly doesn't help. Once again, it's this set of rules. Like, you don't act that way. Yeah, what are you doing? As a military person, you don't act that way. You're trying to intimidate these kids? Yeah, in a civil court, you could pull your pants down, and it won't factor into your punishment. Yeah, the judge will actually tell the jury to to not pay attention to that or to leave for a minute while I I dress down this this defendant, (laughs) right? Exactly. <laughs> you didn't see that. Yeah. That's what they'll say. They'll just say, what is it? What do they say? Ignore the... Strike that from the record. Yeah. It's... Strike that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You did not. They mind wipe them somehow. Will Smith comes out and gives them a little scan. Hey, so interesting. So you said it took them two hours to deliberate to get to a judgment. Uh, do you know what it's taken us an hour and 20 <laughs> minutes to get to? I don't know. What? An ad. An ad way. Okay. <laughs> Even though we've rolled into season two and, you know, you and I are famous, we've been on NBC now and yeah. all the things, we still have to, we got to pay the bills. So. Got to pay the bills. Here's an ad. Okay. So I don't know if we said what the verdict was, but the verdict is guilty. And he is sentenced to life in, in military prison, which is, um, at Fort Leavenworth in Kansas. And they also have to decide whether or not he will be eligible for parole. And they quickly decide no. Again, we're going with this military mindset, the way that they do things. Is it this? Is it that? And it's like, well, if we're saying that he's guilty, then why should he be eligible for parole ever? No. So guilty, hmm. life in prison. No eligibility for parole. See you later, pal. Done. Bang the gavel. Wow. Just like that. Just like that. Just like that. Five trials later, <laughs> just like that. So what happens in these cases is that the uniform is scarred. Yeah. They rip off. The emblems, all the advancements, his, his rank, his merit. Yeah. And they give the badges. They give his outfit back to his family. It looks like they've even scratched it with like a bayonet or something. They've ripped off his... His little uh, arrows on the side there. He was a sergeant, I believe. And that's it. Wow. Other than what happens to the kids afterwards. You know, actually, in other related news with this, Mm -mm. two women were actually, two women were sentenced to two years probation in a district court regarding this case. Michelle Lovelace, who was 37, and Lindsay Brooks, who was 23, were both sentenced to two years for knowingly making false statements. So these two gals made false statements to a federal agent during the Defense Department's investigation into Brent Burke. According to court records, Brent had asked them to lie and say that they were with Brent in the parking lot near the emergency communication center where they both worked 
on the day of the murders. So they, they were trying to give him a false alibi for time and place, right? Mm-hmm. And here's what's interesting about that. I wonder how long it took for them to punch holes in this. They're like, so so you were with him? Yeah, we were we, Yeah, we were with him. Okay, so you you guys were like just you were what you were in a parking lot? Yeah, yeah, we were in a parking lot. How how long were you in a parking lot? Oh gosh, <laughs> seven eight hours. Had to have been, yeah, seven six seven. What were you doing in the park? Well, you know, Brent likes looking at trucks. <laughs> <laughs> I got this four by four. He was super interested. in it. He wanted to check the spark plugs. Freaking out his head. Right. That is just. <laughs> Such a weak alibi. Like you, you, you left. You stopped at parking lot and thought thought of nothing else for a six hour, seven hour span of time. Jeez, no one. You deserve. You deserve two years of yeah probation. So these Jeez, were these were Louise. like nine one one operators that he was using for his alibi, right? Emergency communication center. Is that not that? Well, uh, I I would believe so, but I don't. They they weren't the dispatchers from the call. No, because that's what I initially thought. I initially thought that yeah, they he were had... friends or associates of, right. of. And actually, it's interesting. One of them also received an additional charge for goading the other girl into a false statement. Right. So, right, uh, one was more influential than the other. It's crazy. That's silly. Yeah, it's very silly. Silly. Well, that'll that'll about do it for this call, except for um, what happened with the kids. Um, so Tracy, uh, I'll remind you that she was the mother who was murdered. Her brother Dave and his wife Hillary adopted Ian and uh, Regan, uh, the two younger children. And uh, Matthew, who made the call, was placed with his father, Mike Pete. And uh, the children see each other regularly to this day. They're not children anymore, though. On uh, September 10th, 2015, so that's almost eight years to the day of this incident, 17-year-old Matthew Pete was given the 911 Hero Award. Um, he showed up sharply dressed, well-spoken, stood on the stage in front of a bunch of Kentucky emergency responders and received his award. And he said, quote, I don't think I deserve this. I don't think I did something courageous enough to deserve this. Jeez. And that kid was buttoned. That kid was dialed in when he called. He I, I mean, jeez. If anybody deserves it, that kid does. Also, I think I just had another great idea mm-hmm. for a business proposition. Oh, great. So you've heard it. You 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 remember you know remember the uh, the console compute cons, console video game Guitar Hero. Mm-hmm. What if we made nine one one Hero? Okay. Where you like tap on a phone? You compete by by trying to resolve the nine one one call, and you can play online against other people. And some people online are criminals, or you could actually do an actual crime in your house. And then part of the nine one one hero game is you've got to turn on the game and then and then call nine one one through the game. Right, it's and a really bad idea. I guess what? Yeah, really, it's just 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 doing crimes and calling it a game. Now, nah, never mind. Please forget it. Yeah. We're just, we'll stick with bunt holes for now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that one was not good. <laughs> so, do you got a happy ending? I do, I do. Hey, by the way, since we haven't talked since then, uh, did you notice when I was interviewed by uh, NBC in front of 24 million people and 54 marketplaces, did you notice what I got her to say? You got her to say happy ending, yeah. Please tell the story. I sure did. I did hear that. I sure did. I got her to say happy ending because she outed me. She, She... 
she so, outed me, man. Yeah, yeah, she did. She said my name. Mm-hmm. She, ah, oh, brother. It was hilarious. That was, that was. It was hilarious seeing you in some kind of weird professional setting, and they're like, "And we have with us here." Um, and it's like she didn't know who you were. And like, the operator from Nine One One Calls Podcast. How are you? You're like, "Oh, thank you very much for this award." And she's like, "Oh, what? Are you talking?" It was fun. I'll tell you what, though, that was nerve wracking because I sat down. I'm I'm in the studio that I'm in now, and I just they were like, "Just use your phone. You'll be fine. You know, we'll just do the camera through your phone and everything." So I'm sitting there with my phone mounted in front of my face it's like 6 a.m it's like five hours earlier than i ever get up and i'm sitting there all of a sudden they they gave me a link so i click on this link and then it takes me to this video and it's live television it's a woman doing like a weather report or a top 10 report and i'm in this little box up in the corner like i'm a you know like i'm on the tv (laughs) and i was like i was frozen in fear i'm like Am I on right now? Like, am I supposed to be set? And then all of a sudden, I hear this little voice that's like, can you hear me? Can you hear me? I'm like, what? And, I, and it's coming through the speaker on my phone. And it's like, can you hear me? I'm like, yeah, yeah. I can kind of hear you. But that person is talking over the person doing the top 10 report. And they're like, do you have any Do you have any headphones? Do you have any headphones you could wear? And I'm like, oh, oh, crap. Yeah. Okay, okay hold on a second. And I had to run in my house. It's, my house is pitch dark. Everyone is asleep in my house. I find my iPhone headphones. They're, they're two pairs of iPhone headphones tied in a Gorgian knot. Yeah. Just They're inseparable. And I'm in the dark in my house going, no, 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 no. And I finally get them undone. I run out and I plug them in. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm back. And they're like, okay, stand by. Going live? And I'm like, live? This thing's live? What the hell? What is this? What is this weirdness? So I was live on NBC yeah. for an interview for True Crime Tuesday. And... uh the only thing you couldn't see in the video was that I had crapped a giant brick <laughs> <laughs> because it was happening so fast. I was just like, no one talked to me. There was no one, no good bedside manner, no, no comfort, nothing. Just wham, wham, wham. You, and then they were done. They're like, okay, you're clear. Yeah. And that was it. Nobody talked to me again. And I just like, I was like, so that's how you become famous, huh? <laughs> okay. Okay. I could deal with this. You did well. You did look like a jogger who had just run in. You know, from like a ten mile jog with your yeah. silly headphones and your sweat. You were wearing a sweater that said hugs on it, but you didn't you couldn't see that. So you just looked like yeah, a Yeah, I got cut off in the camera. I just looked like a a, a criminal, you know, like I just robbed that place. I was bl- black hoodie. Yeah. And, you even said hugs at the end to uh, her and she was like, What? <laughs> You're like, yeah. Okay, thank uh, you. Like, hugs. Hugs. <laughs> hugs. She's like, uh-huh. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm hoping they have me back. But if I go back, I want you to come with me. I don't want to go. Would you like that, that or would you no, hate I'd it? No, I'd hate it. I'm, You'd hate, I hate, hate it? I, I freeze up on stuff like that, man. I can't be myself around people who aren't being themselves. They're so phony. Okay. Like, I, if you put me on a show like where people are laid back and know about your actual show, that lady never heard 911 Calls podcast in her life. <laughs> but, okay, do you remember what I told her as to why we started the podcast? Because, because you I said hate you hated 911 Calls. calls. Yeah. So now you just told me you hate those types of interviews. Mm-hmm. So guess who's going on the show with me? Well, I got to show up, though. <laughs> so you're going to have a bit of a problem with that. Oh, I've got a sock puppet that looks just <laughs> like you. I bet you do. <laughs> It's around here somewhere. Yeah, it's got crust all over the mouthpiece. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. Hey, uh, speaking of that, speaking of that, you want me to play a happy ending? Please. 
<laughs> All right. So, a really quick question on this one. Mm-hmm. Where, <laughs> this is a child calling. It's a happy ending, so it's not like the one we just listened to. Mm-hmm. Can you guess which country this child is calling from? Great Britain. Yep. It, yeah. <laughs> so... We, we seem to be outnumbered by the number of intelligent children uh, who can potentially call 999 in Britain and actually be coherent. The U.S. It seems to be deficient in this category. We're going to lose our our place in the standings in countries if we don't get smarter kids. Yeah. Or maybe maybe it's because they just have to hit nine three times that they can do it, and we do nine one one, which is maybe too much for a kid maybe. to to know. Maybe, but this being our season two episode, <laughs> I'd love to talk to you more. But this is so good, we're just going to walk out on this one, please. So yeah, I'd love to walk out <laughs> on this one. All right, everyone, this uh, this will call tug at your heartstrings. It's pretty cute. Thanks, and uh, we'll be we'll be back in. Uh, you know, in your earballs in three to four months. Yeah. <laughs> and once I come up for air again yeah. after bring underwater. <laughs> All right. Hugs, everyone. Ambulance is the patient breathing. Oh, Dad. Hello. Hello. Oh, is your mummy there? Yeah. Can you put her on? Yeah. So she collapsed. She's what? She collapsed. She collapsed? Yeah. Okay. How old are you? Five. And what's your name? George. 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 Yeah. Can you tell if your mummy's breathing? Is she? She's too heavy to lift over. Is she? Is Daddy there as well? No. No. Okay. He's at work. He's at work. Okay. So just stay on the phone with me, okay? Yeah. Does mummy look asleep to you? Yeah. Is she? Is she? Okay. Do you know your mum's name? Yeah. Lad. And what is it? Lad. Can you spell that for me? No. No? Okay. How old is your, your sister or brother? Um, two. Two, okay. Mummy just moved ahead. She's just moved ahead, has she? Yeah. Okay, is she waking up? No. Okay. No. I took her dresses off. Oh, mummy's, mummy's awake now, is she? Yeah. Okay. Mummy. You need to talk to Rambo a minute. Hello, sweetheart. Hello. Hello, sweetheart. Can you tell me what's happened? Yeah, I think I've collapsed. George has done really well. He has. He has. He's only five. I know, he's done fantastic. Don't speak to my son. My eldest son's just come. Your eldest son? Yeah. Okay. That's fine, that's fine. Thank you. All right. Hello. Hiya, mate. How are you? It's not every day we get a, a five-year-old caller. No, I know. I'm quite he, impressed by it. He, he did fantastic. He really did. It's been a roller coaster ride, hasn't it? <laughs> so many laughs, a few tears, and a whole bunch of hugs amongst this crazy community that you've helped us build. From the amazing Facebook groups to the actual awards that you've been sending us, we are overwhelmed with love and appreciation that you've allowed us to make all of these crazy shows at 1159 Media. Even my grandma stopped complaining. At least I haven't heard her voice coming out of the air shafts for a little while. Hmm, probably should check on her. 
our Patreon overfloweth with your amazing support and the store is open. Bean Bean says thank you for making her It's Probably Fine shirt the number one seller so far out of all of these shirts we have for sale. Who could have seen that coming? I gave her a whole dollar and since she's three, she felt like she won the lottery. <laughs> anyway, you make this thing possible. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your patience and most of all, thank you for your love. So much hugs. <laughs> <laughs>